All right. Um, so we're doing a little bit of a different order this morning as I threw Javier off with three songs at the beginning. Um, we're going to go right into our, our scripture reading time this morning, which as we've been encouraging in the book of James, we're going to recite it together uh, verse by verse. And so um, this morning, our text comes from James chapter one, verses nine to 11. And again, I encourage you to be uh, even attempting to try to memorize these passages from week to week. It'd be a great spiritual practice and encouragement to you uh, in your walk with God. So let's read together James 1, 9 to 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. So this morning we are continuing on in our James series. And so um, this is our third, our third sermon in the, in the series in James chapter 1. And again, kind of like what Sarah was talking about in the children's moment about the mirror. Uh, you even see the, the picture on the front of your bulletin or kind of the, uh, the image we're using for this series is one of reflection. And so as, the, as a new year begins, um, I know we're getting further and further away from the new year, but this is a great time to be reflecting on what life is all about. And particularly, who are we trying to reflect in life? So if you were to put a mirror up to your life in the same way that Sarah was asking the girls this morning to put a mirror up to their face, what would you find if you put a mirror up to your life? What would be looking back at you? And not just physical appearance, but also spiritual significance. What, what, is, what is the soul that is looking back at you? Who are you trying to reflect? What are you trying to reflect? And Again, as we begin a new year, it's a good time to be considering what do you want to reflect? And so, of course, the book of James leads us into the, the true thing that we want to reflect, which is God himself. Is that the true life, the true identity of a person, spiritually speaking, in our soul, in the most you part of you, is a reflection of God himself. Because we were made in his image and so we will find our true self when we are seeking to reflect him. And that's what James chapter one does so beautifully for us, just in short snippets, is it leads us into how to reflect the character and person of God in, in sometimes really difficult or countercultural ways or uncomfortable ways. And this morning, I'm imagining that I'm probably gonna make you uncomfortable because we're gonna talk about money for a little bit of this sermon because that's where the text leads us in chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. But just to, just to get us started here, um, let me ask the question, would you eat French fries that were gold? What? What are you talking about? Aren't all French fries gold? Well, you could say, yes, they are. Um, but I literally mean, would you eat French fries that had gold on them? Because... You can find it. There's a restaurant in New York City that has broken the Guinness World Record for the most expensive French fry dish. They literally have crusted their French fries with 23 karat gold dust. 
and you too can buy these french fries for $200 and eat them. Edible gold french fries. Did you know it was a thing? Uh, and so there's a whole article about it and apparently they've done this with um, milkshakes and other things where they, they've broken the Guinness Book of World Records for the most expensive number of things. But if you want to do that, you actually have to request them in 48 hours in advance because there's a wait list to buy these gold crusted French fries. And the reason I asked the question is it's a ridiculous question. Why would you spend $200 on French fries that were crusted with gold? That's so unnecessary. Um, but isn't there maybe just a sneaky part of you that's like, wow, if I was rich and I just had all this money to use, why not? Why not just buy gold French fries? If I had all that extra money and didn't have to worry about things, wouldn't I just do that? Isn't there a little fantasy in each of us that would be swayed by that if, if you had it all? If you were the king in the palace or the queen in the palace and you said, I could do whatever I want, um, maybe we'd be tempted even to go there. But as we know, uh, money has a hold on our hearts and it always has, both in ancient times and in modern times, maybe a unique hold on our life. You know, money can solve so many things that the body needs, house, food, medical needs, but it cannot ultimately solve everything. It cannot ultimately speak for the soul and it cannot ultimately save you and ultimately cannot keep you healthy. Even if you had all the money to purchase all the medical needs you had, there's certain things that it can't protect you from. And this is why Jesus spends so much time putting you and I in uncomfortable positions when we read the Bible, because he talks about money so much. You ever notice that? He talks about money and treasure and things that we acquire. He talks about it a lot throughout the four gospels. And then Paul and James and John and Peter, they pick up on that in their letters as well and talk about money. Jesus says famously, you cannot serve both God and money. That's what he says in Luke 16, 13 to 15. But the question I want us to face, to face down this morning, face to face, is are you a lover of money? Or another way to say it, which is maybe more along the lines of what James gets at, is what do you boast in? What do you glory in? So in chapter 1 verse 9 it says let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation or that word boast could mean glory what do you what do you find glory in, in your life and so today's ser sermon will focus on money because he has he has something to say to both camps he has something to say to those who really don't have anything to offer those who don't have money those who are not rich those who definitely aren't going to buy $200 french fries but he also has something to say to those who do have the ability to buy those $200 French fries or those that do have it all or those who have been blessed with money, with money and monetary blessing. And so the point this morning is, is as, as he talks about the lowly, those who don't have anything at all, the point this morning is that the lowly life, the life where you don't necessarily have it all, or maybe don't even have enough to get by. That's actually the highly pursued life that we all should be striving for. The lowly life is to be the highly pursued life. 
And we're going to need to explain that a little bit because that's going to take some convincing. Charles Spurgeon says, if God has called you to be his servant, don't ever stoop to be a king. If God has called you to be a servant, don't ever stoop to be a king. So let's just look at this in two big waves here. First, let's look at what James says to the lowly, to those who don't have much, to those who don't have the pressure to even even think about whether to buy $200 French fries, which is a lot of us in this room. Most of us, I saw heads shaking. No, I'd never buy that because that's a waste of money. What does God have to say? What does James have to say to the lowly? So beginning in verse nine, it says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So what does lowly mean? What does this word get at? Lowly here is simply a word that you could translate humble or those who are low status in society, those who are undistinguished, unpretentious, or those who are servants. So you could say just a normal person or even a step below kind of the average, maybe those who are struggling to make ends meet. Those are on the lowly scale, the humble folks in the world. These are those that are obscure, but in the best possible sense, meaning that they're not those seeking fame or fortune or the front row seat to the next concert or sporting event. They're not going to be the ones chumming with the important people of society. This is the person who doesn't get a special phone call from people offering them free tickets to the next Celtics game or the box seats to the Patriots game or to get a special meeting with the important people in society. They're, they're not that kind of person. They're just the lowly person. They have no necessarily status to speak of. They don't have it all or try to keep up with the Joneses because there's no pressure to do that. And they wouldn't even choose to do that anyway. Lowliness or humility actually are those who are most content in life in a lot of ways because they're not being pressured into the sway of things, the sway of money. They're pressured by other things, but they actually have a deep and residing contentment in life. They're not worried about the things of the world. They're not defined by what the world defines success by. They are content or assured to find deeper joy in life and something else. They have an assurance about who they are, their calling, their identity that can't be defined by somebody else because they're lowly, because we are lowly because you are lowly. I don't know all of your circumstances, but maybe you find yourself in this category. Lowliness or humility is also a sign of deep servant identity. These are people that enjoy being on the ground, scrubbing the floors for other people and not really looking for the acclaim of it. They are others oriented and everything, not self oriented. One, one writer says that we are, we are most ourselves when we are not thinking the most about ourselves. Let me just say that again. We are most ourselves when thinking the least about ourselves. So that's you. When you're thinking about yourself the least, that's actually the most you, you. When you're not trying to prove yourself or live up to a certain standard that maybe someone else has put on you, that's, that's the real you. Lowliness and humility is a grace-given status. Do you know that? That to be lowly or humble or of no status in the world is actually a grace? That's actually a deep gift that's been given to you? 
it may not feel that way most of the time because you may say, well, I, I struggle to go paycheck to paycheck and I struggle on rent or I don't have the house I dreamed of or I, I, can't, I can't get all my things fixed or I can't you know, just go on. But it's actually a grace. It's a status in society given by God to you for eternal purposes. It's a gift, not a curse. And yet so many of us, I think, feel like the lowliness unimportant, undistinguishable identity can sometimes feel like a curse, like you're the ignored part of society. But James chapter four, verse six. So if you have your Bible and you wanna flip over just one page to chapter four, verse six, this is what it says about God. It says, but God gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble or gives grace to the lowly. God loves to dispense grace on those who are low in status because it's actually there where you find that life is turned upside down and inside out. What usually is up for the rest of the world to the lowly person, it's not. And what's usually down for the rest of the world, it's not for the lowly person because their heart has been transformed by God. They've been given the gift of grace to see that life is not about the upward status or climbing the ladder, or it's not about being told you're nothing because you don't have what the rest of the world has. Their life has been turned inside out, upside down. Lowliness is actually the place of highest honor in the world. It graces you to be where Jesus already is, which is gentle and lowly in heart. It's where Jesus already is. If you fall into that place of lowliness, then you're actually nearer to God than most of the world is. Because Jesus is on the ground serving the least of these. No place to lay his head, no possessions to speak of. He came to serve. And if you're on the lowly spot in society, you're actually really close to where Jesus is. Jesus says, come to me all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You are not cursed if you are lowly. You're actually right next to the heart of Jesus. It graces you to not care about the cares of the world or about the allures of money that so tempt us into sin. It graces you to not look at your own needs, but to look at the needs of others. Can you imagine if you stepped into the freedom of the joy of being lowly and could just say, I don't have to have all these, these attachments. I'm free actually to just live my life for God and for others. Can you imagine the joy that would come at that? In order to train ourselves to do that, one, one writer named Robert Murray McShane, he says, for every one look at yourself, so imagine the mirror again. When you take, take a mirror and look at yourself, at your soul, at yourself. For every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. And what that trains us to do over time is to see that the lowly life is actually the highly sought after life. That's the life we want to be living. As one really prominent pastor who I quote often, John Stott, as he says, humility is actually the crown of the Christian life. 
We should boast or glory in our lowliness, not try to run from it or escape from it, but to have a life of such deep humility and simplicity that we are glorying in being poor or lowly or needy or dependent. He says that is the supreme quality of the Christian life, a humble life of humility and lowliness, because humility actually is the path to exaltation. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, because if you're low, God will bring you up. He will exalt you. So that's what this text has to say to the lowly. Have I flipped that upside down yet for you? I I just want to emphasize how free of a life that can be to live in that kind of state. And now James's word to the rich or to those who have material blessing or those who have abundance. He says, let the rich boast in his humiliation. Rich in this case, I want to be really clear on this. Rich in this case is referring to rich people who are using their money for selfish gain. I want to make that distinction important because uh, you can be rich and be selfless. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But particularly how James is talking and the warning he's shouting out here is for those who are rich but use it for selfish gain. So those who have lots of money, for sure, but those who have riches and pursue their own things. So verse 11, it says, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his own pursuits. Do you see that? That's important. This is a person who has riches and abundance, but is pursuing his own life with it or her own life with it. They're taking the money that they've been gaining and saying, ooh, what can I do with this? This could be a really great life to live with this. And that's where the allure of the $200 French fries comes in, is why not? I have it to spare, why not? And the warning here is you'll fade away in the midst of your pursuits. This is not condemning the rich in the world who use it for good. And that's important to know. So just some basic points here for the selfish rich though, because Again, all of us can find ourselves in this place because money gets a hold of our heart easily. But just some, a couple of basic quick points here. Number one, selfish rich people ultimately will be boasting in their being brought low, meaning that money used selfishly will always defeat you. Money used for selfish means always eventually at some point will catch up to you and ultimately defeat you. As great as it feels in the moment to get that thing or to pursue that that item or to find that life through money in selfish ways, as great as it feels in that moment, it ultimately will catch you and defeat you. Number two, money used selfishly is beautiful and awesome in the moment, but it's temporary. You see here, he uses the metaphor of the flower of the grass that he will fade away because the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, the flower falls and its beauty perishes. Meaning that just as the sun predictably each year comes out and scorches the grass and the flowers, just as predictably money is eventually scorched and loses its beauty. Number three, money used selfishly actually destroys the person who owns it. So also will the rich man 
fade away in his pursuits. It doesn't say that just the money will go away. It says that the person who possesses the money will actually rot and wither away and die if they stay in their selfish pursuit of money. What withers away is not the money itself, but the person controlling the money. The soul of the person is what's at stake here, James says, not just the money itself. Let me just read a text from Isaiah chapter 40. This is a prophet. And it, he uses the same image here of the grass and the flowers and the sun. But let me just read how, he's, how he phrases it. Let's just let this build some cohesion here. He says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh, all people are grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but what will stand forever? The word of the Lord will stand forever. The point Isaiah comes to at the end of that grass withering flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it is that one thing ultimately will stand and it's the word of God. And so back in our text in James, it says that the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. You may have been asking the question, I asked the question this week, what is the sun representing in that passage? Who is it that scorches the grass, that looks at the money we have and then and scorches it? And Isaiah gives us the answer. It's that the breath of the Lord blows on it and that, that's what scatters it. And this is the danger of coming to church <laughs> or reading your Bible, is you begin to see that the word of God challenges us with money, challenges us with, with our material possessions, blows on it, and ultimately fades it away. And the prayer for us is that we don't fade away with it. We can release the money and it fade away, but we don't want our soul to go with it. All of us are like grass. We're dependent temporary things, but grace is here. You see how the low, the valleys are lifted up. We wanna be there. Because again, the low place is the, is the highly pursued place. That's where you'll be lifted up. So here's some encouragement for the wealthy or for those who have possessions or those who have money. And we're coming here uh, to the end of this text. And I'm just going to give you some encouragements here. And I'm going to close with a couple of stories that I was really encouraged by this week. Here, here's some encouragement regarding wealth and money for Christians. Number one, give thanks. If you have money, if you have possessions, if you're if you're generally living in a way that is, is blessed and comfortable, give thanks. Wealth is the greatest avenue to the generosity of God in this world. We talked a little bit about generosity last week, the heart of God that he gives us. He's a generous giving God. If God has blessed you with wealth, then you get to experience what God feels like all the time and being generous. Wealth is a gift that some of us receive and it's a grace too, but it only has impact when it's given away. As one person says, grace is the lightning to the thunder 
of generosity. Grace is the lightning and generosity is the thunder that follows after it. You see that metaphor? You know, like if you're watching a storm, the lightning comes first, flashes the sky, and then you all kind of brace. It's like, okay, when's the thunder gonna come? And then a second or two later it comes. If you see grace in your life, generosity is the thunder that flows behind it. So give thanks. Number two, another encouragement for the wealthy and for Christians who have money, be warned. Wealthy is one of the greatest sacrifices of following Jesus. And so if God has blessed you with money and with, with an abundance of possessions, just be warned that you're going to have to sacrifice it, that that's the call of Jesus. Riches cannot be dealt with in the neutral. It has to be proactively given one way or the other, either lived into with your own pursuits or seeing God's kingdom value and giving it to his purposes. So don't hoard it, don't idolize it, don't store things in barns, as Jesus says in Luke 12. He says, the one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. Wealth teaches us a unique way of sacrifice in the following of Jesus, of laying it down for the cause of a greater kingdom. And so we said last week how generosity should always hurt a little bit. The difference between just, just giving and being generous is that being generous means that you're sacrificing something, sacrificing some kind of comfort or joy and trust that it's for something better. And so do you trust that you'll receive something greater in eternity if you give away something now? That's the challenge, that's the warning for us. Number three, take responsibility for your wealth. Wealth is a great teacher of how to live a life of responsibility to God. And so maybe you've heard the, the phrase, uh, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Uh, that's a little bit of the burden here that, that the wealthy have, is there's a burden to being a rich Christian. Sometimes we trick ourselves into the opposite of, if I'm rich, then I'm free. I don't have to worry about things. But I've already said, remember, it's the lowly who are free because they don't have the concern. They get to just be dependent on God and trust him for all things. The rich wear the heavy crown, and that's the responsibility. So how can you be responsible with money in a, in a God-honoring way? It can be scary to have that grace of money. And so use it for the glory of God. Give it to the mission of God. Send it away so that the nations may hear of the gospel of Jesus. And this is why I want to tell one story. I've, I've been reading a little bit this week the biography of a guy named C.T. Studd, who's got a great name. Uh, but he was a missionary to China in the early 1900s, C.T. Studd. But he was born into a wealthy English family. His dad was a merchant in India back in the late 1800s, made a ton of money, came back to England so that he could, he could enjoy his money. That's the way the story goes. So he came back, they bought a huge house, and they just, he had a bunch of horses, and they, his son played cricket, and they just, they did all these wealthy English things. And so eventually his dad came to Christ and became a believer in Jesus. And his son followed suit later and also became a Christian and decided that he wanted to give his life to God in missions. Um, and this is where the story gets interesting. So CT goes to China to be a missionary, um, but he realizes that he has an extraordinary inheritance that is coming his way because his dad is wealthy. And so again, this is around the year 1887, so around the turn of the century. 
uh, he had 29,000 English pounds of inheritance, or at the time, it's about $34,000, which according to my Google search in today's monetary value, it's about a million dollars. He's got about a million dollar inheritance that he's sitting on. And he decided to forsake all of it. On January 13th, 1887, he gave four different groups of people 5,000 pounds. So remember he has 20, 29,000 pounds. So four different groups, he gave 5,000 pounds, which adds up to 20,000. One of the people was D.L. Moody, and he used that money to help start Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Another person uh, did missionary work among orphans, and he gave 5,000 to him. Another person worked among the poor in London, he gave 5,000 to him. And he gave 5,000 more to the Salvation Army in India. And then he dispersed the rest among other needy folks that he knew. And he had a little bit of money left over, and he was about to get married. So he talked to his soon-to-be wife and said, what do you want to do with this? We should probably consider if this is going to be part of our married life going forward. And do you know what his wife said? She said, CT, what did the Lord tell the rich young man to do? And CT said, he told him to sell it all. And she said, well, then we should start clear with the Lord at our wedding. And so they decided as a couple to give away the rest. And so they wrote another letter to General Booth of the Salvation Army again. And they gave him a long letter saying, this is why we're giving you this money. We're trusting our lives to the Lord. And at the very bottom of the letter, it just says, whatever you do with this money, just pass along with it the inscription, quote, go and do likewise. Wow. The last encouragement for the wealthy Christian is to wear, wear your wealth with love. And so if I said humility is the crown that the Christian wears, wealth is the towel that the Christian wears. And what I mean by that is remember Jesus on the night he was betrayed when he brought his disciples into the upper room before he gave the supper he took off his robe, tied a towel around his waist, and he washed his disciples' feet. Wealth for a Christian is like the towel that we take off. We tie it around our waist and we serve others out of deep love with it. Wealth is only useful when you take it off and use it to wash and serve others. The lowly life should be the highly pursued life. Let me close with this other story. One last story for you, and then we're going to have a time just of reflection with the Lord as Javier plays some music. But in the early 1990s, in the span of one week, two of the most famous women of the entire 20th century died within just a week of each other. One of them was a princess who died in a horrible car accident in a luxury car in London, and the other died in a convent in Calcutta in the slums of India where she was serving the poor and the needy. One, of course, is Princess Diana, one of the most famous, glamorous, rich, wealthy people in the whole world that people all around the world adored. And the other, of course, is Mother Teresa, who's been sainted since. But one writer this week was reflecting on the fact that 
These two women died just within a couple of days of each other, yet they were so different and yet also universally known, but for totally different reasons. And he says, you know, when you think about Diana, none of us can even try to become somebody like Princess Diana. We can't, we can't just stumble into that kind of status. You can't work harder and become that. You can't become beautiful like she was beautiful. You can't just work your way into the royal family like that. She just, she was something unique. And yet there is nothing, absolutely nothing, this author says, stopping us from taking up Mother Teresa's place. Every one of us, if we wanted to, could give up our whole life, move to the slums somewhere and serve the poor. All of us could do it. Nothing is holding us back. And yet, so why are so many of us, the author says, trying to become a celebrity and so few of us trying to become a saint. That's the challenge before us with texts like this one. 